We're going to look into the Scriptures at this time, and we're going to go back again to Acts chapter 4. This morning I'd like to read from verse 13 through verse 22. If you remember the scene, Peter and John healed a man who'd been born lame as they were entering into the temple courts. It's an afternoon, they were coming to pray with a group of people, most likely after the workday, And that led into a confrontation with the religious leaders of the city of Jerusalem. And we pick this up in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the men who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Let's pray for a moment. God, whenever we look into the Holy Scriptures, we are seeking to explore and to benefit from words that your Holy Spirit has inspired. So we're not seeking just to understand what's written on the page. We want to understand how you are instructing us and how you are equipping people then and how you equip us today to live out our faith in the midst of a world that sometimes is a very confusing place. Pray for wisdom. We pray that you would use the process that we go through here week after week to mold us more and more into the people you want us to become. Thank you for being a God who does not just set the world in place and and then stand off afar, never touching our world or impacting our lives. Thank you for being a God who does at times enter into how this world works. We recognize you are God. You are before creation, beyond creation. You are not limited in ways that we are limited. And we don't tell you what to do. We don't control you. You don't work at our command. But you give us this privilege of prayer, asking us to call on your name, inviting us to bring the affairs of our lives, the affairs of this world to your attention, that you might pour out mercy, and that at times you may act with power, all along changing us, and sometimes, oftentimes, changing the world changing circumstances. I pray 
that you would use this time that we spend together, fellowshipping, learning, worshiping, praying, to take our faith further down the road where you have already been leading us. That regardless of where we are in our own personal journeys toward faith and maturity and transformation, that you would take us a bold step further. We pray for this world that we live in. As we get into election season, we all have probably differing ideas of what we would long to see happen. And we all grow tired of the bickering and the isolation that seems to be all around us and the division. We long for you to work in our world in ways that brings more hope, more help, more joy to more people. And we long to see you bring the hope of Jesus to more homes, to more lives, to more individuals, bringing the hope of transformation, bringing the hope of joy, bringing the hope of heaven. And so use this time that we have this morning toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lewis and Clark expedition began in 1804 when President Thomas Jefferson commissioned his cousin, Captain Mary Luther, Weathers, uh, Mary Weather Lewis, I said that all backwards, <laughs> to explore the lands that were west of the Mississippi River that were part of what was becoming known as the Louisiana Purchase. The specific hope centered on finding a waterway that would provide a passage from the Mississippi River westward. What they longed they would hope to find is some river that would allow people to go from the the parts of our country that were known and mapped and well-traveled all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Lewis chose William Clark as his co-leader, and the two of them handpicked a team to join them on this particular expedition. Nobody knew how long it would take. They never dreamed it would be two years before they would ever come home again. And their greatest challenge tested the ability of these two men to lead their crew once they traveled beyond the areas that had been covered by the maps of that time. As they moved past the northern sections of the Mississippi and toward the Rocky Mountains, they found they were exploring land that no English-speaking Americans had yet encountered, again, without a map. And then the rivers took them as far as they could go, and they began to climb the first of the Rockies, carrying their large canoes with them up the Rockies, thinking that on the other side of the first mountain, they would find one of those rivers that would lead them to the west coast, only to get to the vista on the top of the mountain and look up again and realize there were more and higher mountains. And so they ditched their canoes, realizing that wasn't going to be the solution. There was going to be another path that they would have to find. This is the scenario that is painted by Todd Bolsinger in his 2015 book called Canoeing the Mountains. What a great topic. Bolsinger was not interested in simply telling the story of Lewis and Clark as a history lesson, but in extracting the lessons born from leading others well when you're off the grid, off the map that is based on experiences of others who have gone before. About a year or two before uh, COVID hit, 
Todd Shimshak shared this book with our staff, and we worked through it, and we took almost an entire year to pursue this concept of canoeing the mountains. What is it like when you are beginning to walk through life, and you're off the grid of what has been done before, and things are no longer exactly the same? There could not have been a better book for us as a staff to work through at that time when everything got thrown upside down and all the changes hit. The experience of Lewis and Clark is akin to the challenges faced by the Jesus' disciples, especially Peter and John, as they began to lead the fledgling yet fast-growing Jesus movement in Jerusalem and beyond. No one had walked in these shoes before. They were off the grid in terms of leadership development of how things were going to operate. They were facing suddenly hostile opponents who were intent on stamping out this new movement of Jesus followers. If the opposition won, their movement would cease and the church would never really take root across the continent. Their only choice was to resist, to defy the orders of those who were intent on stopping the spread of Christian faith. This morning, as we continue our Faith Explosion series, we're looking at principles in this series that contributed to the spread of Christian faith in the earliest years of the Christian church. But we're asking, how do these principles help us live out our faith today where we are? And today I come to a topic that I've been wanting to to set up. It's one of the reasons why we've been going going back to the same passages and picking out different phrases and, and, and different highlights within these verses but we're going to talk about Jesus-centered defiance. When do we defy the opposition? When do we defy those groups that seem to be the majority when we are a distinct minority as a people group or as a faith group? So, good morning, and let me welcome you here to North River Church. Once again, I am so glad that you're with us today. Whether you are in the room today or whether you're watching us from your home or wherever you may find yourself, Thanks for tuning in online. This is, again, one of those Sundays where we're we're going to learn something that is essential in preparing us for times when the challenges of living a life of faith becomes difficult or hard. Okay, if you have questions about this afterward, I'd love to hear you... uh, your questions and your thoughts. There are a number of ways that Christy pointed out that you can connect with us. You can do that by scanning the QR code that will lead to a connection card on your phone. You can write down your questions on there. You can go to our website, northriverchurch.org forward slash visit, and the connection card will show up there. You can ask for one out at the Welcome Center, or you can email me, paul at northriverchurch.org. If you've got a question, if there's something that God was, was prompting you to respond with, I'd love to hear that. Here's my question for this morning. How should Christians respond to opposition? Opposition to the message of Christian faith. Opposition to your intent just to tell your story or your intent to praise Jesus in the midst of this fast-changing world around us. Let me set this up, first of all, by going backward into where we've been the last couple of weeks because there are three foundational steps that set up this discussion about how we respond to opposition. Here's the first of these foundational steps. These were the steps that Peter and John had taken that prepared them for this particular moment where they had to stand alone. First, they spent time with Jesus. And so we saw in verse 13, it says that when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
We focused on this point two weeks ago, noting that this is the key factor in the development of Peter and John and the courageous leadership of Peter and John and, and what the opposition was seeing in them. The greatest compliment that they ever received comes from their critics saying the only thing that could explain this sudden rise in courageous leadership was they had spent time with Jesus. The disciples had spent three years in close contact with Jesus. This included meals together, travel, getaways, mountaintop retreats, and more. And then there was the on-the-job testing that he had given them as he sent them out two by two to begin to spread the gospel on their own and then to come back and tell Jesus all the stories of what had happened. He also gave them graduate-level teaching during those 40 days after the resurrection and before Jesus ascended to the heavens. The payoff from all of this training is seen in the comment that comes from their critics. The critics were astonished and noted that these men had been with Jesus. The single most important element of Christian development is spending time with Jesus. It is not showing up and parking your butt in a chair in a church service. It is not necessarily tuning in online in order to be part of a church, of a church service. It is spending time with Jesus. And if we are not helping you spend time with Jesus so that you know Jesus, you should leave this church because we are not doing what the gospel would tell us to do and we are not leading you in the direction that Jesus was leading his disciples. Does that make sense to you? All of this is designed to help you daily spend more time with Jesus so that the world becomes astonished by what God is doing in you and in me. Corporate worship, prayer, and teaching on Sundays is essential for Christians today. Yet this cannot take, take place of time spent with Jesus. Here's the second foundational step. They were anchored on the rock. And so when they were asked to defend themselves, they immediately went back to Old Testament scriptures that Jesus had taught them about. We explored this as well a couple of weeks ago. And they answered, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When asked by what authority they spoke and acted and healed, Peter and John were very clear that their authority came from no one else but Jesus. Jesus' authority was firmly established by God and then confirmed by his resurrection. And they were solid on this conviction. They summed all of this up with the assertion of Psalm 118, verse 22, that says that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the rock at the center of all God's redemptive work, the rock that holds, the rock that does not move, the rock that anchors us to truth. Why did the disciples answer this way by invoking Jesus as the cornerstone? They were absolutely convinced that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to and foretold Jesus and they had come to the conclusion that Jesus was the cornerstone of their faith, and they were building on that foundation. And so they went back to the source of that conviction. This is what will give us confidence today. Spending time with Jesus, building on the rock, the cornerstone, and third, seeking to be filled by the Holy Spirit. This is what we talked about last Sunday. And so verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, at the very beginning of this address, we are told that the Holy Spirit was operating in his life in, in a sense of power. Remember, we don't control and we cannot manipulate the Holy Spirit, but we can seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes God simply sends a deeper measure of his Spirit in our time of need. The Holy Spirit can be sent by God, the Father, or by Jesus the Son at any time, 
And while the Holy Spirit is an ongoing presence of God with each of us who put their, our faith in Christ from the moment that we first activate that faith, we can also experience times when we are filled with a greater measure of God's Spirit, equipping us for roles that He wants us to take on that further Christ's mission in the world. I gave that challenge last Sunday. I wonder how many of you took it up to say, Lord, I'm, I'm open and I'm, I'm loving, I, I want to see how you will use me this week. And I got an email from one guy who said, I, I really want you to come over and have coffee with me because I have to tell you what happened in my life this week. I'm looking forward to being able to do that this week. I'd love to hear what he has to say. From this pivotal moment in Peter's ministry, we find Peter doing four things. Honoring the name of Jesus. He says, this man was healed in Jesus' name illuminating the cross-centered mission of Jesus. He speaks of Jesus being crucified and, and raised again by God. Third, he was revealing the prophetic role of Jesus. He talks about Jesus as the stone, the cornerstone upon which the rest of the foundation is built, and then declaring the uniqueness of Jesus. Peter says there is no other name by which we must be saved. And so they were talking about the singular path that God has provided through Jesus. Okay, here's the big idea that I want to get across this morning. When you have to choose between Jesus and culture, stand up for Jesus and trust the results to God. I want to talk about some principles of Jesus-centered defiance that we see from the disciples here in this moment. Here's the first. Expect opposition. Verse 16 brings us into the middle of a conversation as the members of the Sanhedrin are conferring. They are astounded and astonished by Peter and John and their boldness and their courage. And they say, what are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Peter and John, at this moment, were facing direct opposition from the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jerusalem. They wanted to stop this gospel movement of Jesus' followers immediately. They wanted to stop it from spreading, and they thought that perhaps a strong decision will stop this thing in its tracks now. They were troubled by the fact that there were already 5,000 people that were openly following Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. Now, before we go any further... Let me stress that Christians in every age ought to expect opposition along the way. Why? Well, think of Jesus. Jesus was loved by many, yet he faced growing waves of opposition as he moved deeper and deeper into that three-year public ministry period. He warned his disciples that they would face opposition too. At one point in John chapter 15, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that they hated me first. He's talking about the world as, as a system, the world as the, the system that is opposed to what God is doing at times. He's not saying that God doesn't love the world and the world isn't beautiful and all that. There are two different ways that that, that word or that concept is used in the New Testament. People who reject the gospel or who reject Jesus as God's one solution to humankind's sin problem will naturally oppose Jesus and anyone who represents him if they don't understand it. We don't have to go looking for opposition or be oppositional in spirit. I'm troubled sometimes by the Christians I meet who are heat-seeking missiles for opposition. That's not the way that Jesus instructed his disciples. But because some groups are opposed to Jesus and the gospel, they will try to limit you. 
when we expect opposition, we also begin to prepare for it, and we are better off for that. Here's the second principle that we find. Choose God's authority over human authority. So if you're filling in the blanks, the word you're missing there is authority. Again, go back to verse 17 and now add in verse 18. There, the Sanhedrin is talking and they say, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them not to speak, uh, warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So, Peter and John were facing direct opposition from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin wanted to stop this gospel movement of Jesus' followers immediately. They knew that they could not erase the healing of the lame man from the memory of the people. So they drew the line at teaching and speaking in the name of Jesus. Think about this for a moment. There may have been a strong temptation for the disciples to go along here, to get along in this moment. They were not prevented from gathering in the temple courts for prayer. They were not prevented from meeting in private homes or to pray or to break bread together. They were simply told that they could not openly teach in the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin was given authority to govern over Jewish affairs in Jerusalem. The Roman government allowed this as a policy of local appeasement. So the Sanhedrin could temporarily jail the disciples, and they would soon try that. In fact, Peter and John had already spent one night in jail. But this would happen again in the future. And now the Sanhedrin was drawing the line at the mere mentioning or speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus or mentioning the resurrection. Peter and John immediately sized up this situation, and they saw this as a battle over authority. The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin had repeatedly challenged Jesus' authority when he was with them. And they saw that Jesus didn't back down in these situations, so neither did the disciples. The Bible writers, Bible writers also tell us to submit to authority whenever possible. In Romans 13, for instance, government is seen as a provision for our good. We are told to pay our taxes, to pay respect and honor when that is due. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, calls us to submit to human authorities for the Lord's sake. He tells us to silence the ignorant talk about those who blame Christians or speak negatively of Christians by doing good and by using our freedom for good. This means, when we put these thoughts together, that we must use any act of defiance for those rare moments when the conflict clearly prevents us from honoring Jesus or from following the commands of God. For Peter and John, being forbidden to speak or teach about Jesus or use the name of Jesus was when the opposition crossed that line that forced them into this moment of defiance against that kind of command. Again, here's the big idea that we're working on. When you have to choose between Jesus and culture, stand up for Jesus and trust the results to God. So we expect opposition, and we choose God's authority over man-made authority in those moments. Here's the third principle. Stand up for Jesus. Verse 19. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to, or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
There is a tendency for people today to say, oh, it was a whole lot easier back then. The disciples wouldn't have understood the day that we live in. It's harder today. But think about this. The earliest Christians started as a persecuted minority. They lived in an age of religious pluralism. Jewish religion was dominant in Jerusalem and parts of Israel, but Rome was the greatest power. And the Greeks and the Romans worshipped many gods. They were polytheistic. And those gods and their idols were all over the, the artwork and the statues and the culture of that day. This meant that these Christians were much more of a minority than we are actually in this land today. The Sanhedrin drew their line at speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. This was not a minor point of conflict in the mind of the disciples. They viewed Jesus' authority as far greater than the authority of the Sanhedrin. They knew that they had what they had seen and heard, and they knew that they had even touched, in some cases, Jesus. Think of Thomas and the invitation to touch his wounds. And they were convinced that the gospel was the only hope that we have for reconciliation with God. In a sense, the Sanhedrin did John and Peter a favor by making this conflict so clear and by making it about Jesus. If it came down to honoring the Sanhedrin or honoring Jesus, they would choose Jesus. Now, imagine being told that you can practice your faith. You just can't mention Jesus. How would that go over? How would that go over in our church? How would that go over in your home? How would that go over in the way that you've been living your life so far? Would you go along? If there was more pressure applied, when would you find it easier just to go along with that and say, I just won't mention Jesus? We'll mention all the good things that come out of Christian faith, but we just won't talk about the cross. We won't talk about the resurrection. We won't talk about those things that sometimes make some people uncomfortable. Now, there are times when we should honor that. For instance, when you're at work and you're on the boss's time and and you're supposed to give your best to whatever that is, you're being paid and, and you have an implied contract with your boss that your best attention, your focus is going to be on what your work is and you should give it there. In those moments, we serve the Lord best by the way that we work and by how we treat others. We let our love for others and our personal character lead the way. And we save our talk about Jesus for those times when we're not on the clock. But there are other times, other occasions, when people ask about the reasons that we have for hope, and it's your time, not the boss's time. And those are moments when we should speak up, and we should speak about what we know. When the conflict forces you to follow Jesus or some other force or some other personality or some other mentality, choose Jesus. That's what Peter and John did here in Acts 4. They insisted on having the freedom to tell others about Jesus. In a world where everybody else was free to talk about the idol that they followed as the top of the polytheistic gods or to follow the the God of, of the Hebrew Scriptures, everybody else was free to mention their Lord except they were trying to put these confines on those who would speak about Jesus and they called them on it. No. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. We're not going to stop talking about Jesus. Do with us what you will. Servant evangelism is great. But somehow people still need to hear about Jesus. And they don't learn that through servant evangelism alone. 
Years ago, Dr. Alvin Reed, who is the author of a book called Sharing God Without Freaking Out, assigned his students to share their testimony, in other words, their personal faith story, with three people that week and then to come back a week later and talk in class about what they had learned. So a few days later, the students reported back to Dr. Reed about how this went. One of those students told the professor about talking to a neighbor that he'd known for seven years. The man called himself an atheist, but he listened to this guy faithfully as he, he shared the, the story of what God was doing in his life. And the student ended his talk with his neighbor by saying, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. And then he ended his report in tears as he added his neighbor's response. The neighbor responded to him by saying, if Jesus Christ is the greatest thing that has ever happened to you, why has it taken you seven years to tell me? Leads to the fourth principle. The first is expect opposition, then choose God's authority over man-made authority. Stand up for Jesus and then stand and face the music. Verse 21 and verse, verse 22 lead us in this direction. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Notice what happens here. Peter and John are called to appear before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, 71 members. They have spent the night in jail. They're told now not to speak in Jesus, and they're defying that edict and saying, no, 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 we, you can't stop us from doing that. Whatever may come, we're, we're going to talk about the hope that we have and why. And Peter and John didn't just shout the name of Jesus and run away. They stood there. They openly declared that they could not stop telling others about what they'd seen and heard. They'd spent that night in jail for speaking in the name of Jesus. Here on the second day, when the Sanhedrin comes up with their solution, they hear the solution. You can continue to teach. You continue to, to be who you are. You just can't mention the name of Jesus. And they did not hide their intentions or their resistance in that moment. They refused to water down their teaching in order to get along with the Sanhedrin. And they stood there as the Sanhedrin made further threats. I wish I knew what was in those threats. What could that have been? They've already thrown them in jail. Facing the music was an act of trusting the results to God. A moment ago, we were singing this song, and I was thinking about this point, and I hear these words wash over me from from you as the congregation. I will put my trust in you alone, and I will not be shaken. And here's this moment when Peter and John were standing alone, and they were not shaken by the power of the opposition. Have you ever wondered how Luke knew that this conversation was taking place within the Sanhedrin's meeting? I mean, think of it. Peter and John are told to go somewhere else. The Sanhedrin meets, and then they call them back in. So how do we have this report in Luke's gospel? Was it just made up? Is this uh, narrative fiction here that Luke asserts? I'd like to suggest to you that there are some very likely possibilities for eyewitnesses within the Sanhedrin's meeting. We don't know with absolute certainty, but there are some very possible clues. For instance, John chapter 3 identifies a Pharisee named Nicodemus who we are told as 
uh, was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And then there's another guy named Joseph of Arimathea. He was wealthy and influential leader in Jerusalem. We wonder if he too was a member of the Sanhedrin. But these are the two men who asked Pontius Pilate for permission to take the body of Jesus down from the cross. And they buried Jesus in Joseph's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Another possibility is a young man named Saul of Tarsus who soon would become known by his surname Paul after his encounter with Jesus. Saul was hired by the Sanhedrin to round up and to arrest and to punish early Christians. We wonder, was he in this meeting too? But somebody was there. Somebody reported back exactly what the conversation had been like. And there are a handful of possibilities about who may have been a part of that conversation and who relayed this on. This also tells us that God is often working on people who are buried in the midst of those who oppose, even though John and Peter couldn't see that happening at the moment. That gives me hope for our day too. You never know who is encouraged by the moment when you stand up in faith and you stand firm and you face the music. Scott Sunquist tells a story about Mary, a drama student in a large university. Her professor uh, in this introductory acting class asked all of the students to present something extreme to the class. So Mary decided after that class as she was thinking about what her presentation would be that as a Christian she would write a personal hymn of love to Jesus and she would sing it in that class. However, Alice was the student who was presenting on the next day before her. Alice took a Bible, led the class out to a trash can on campus, and proceeded to slowly read some of the portions of the Old Testament that had commands about going to war with one nation or another, or God punishing the nations, or sending Israel into exile because of their disobedience. And then she read some of the imprecatory psalms. That's where somebody essentially prays against somebody else. And with each violent passage... Alice would say something like that, something like, who would ever believe in a God like that? And she would tear the page out of the Bible and she would throw it in the trash can and light it on fire. It was extreme drama. She got a high grade in the class. And just after that, it was Mary's turn. (laughs) And she pulled out her guitar. She whispered a brief prayer under her breath and she sang this love song she had written to Jesus. The class was silent, and when she ended, they all went home. All that is except for Alice, the girl who had ripped the pages out of the Bible and thrown them in the trash can and lit them on fire. And she walked up to Mary and said, that was beautiful. This is the God I want to know. Can you help me get to know that Jesus? And after a few days of Bible study together in prayer, Alice gave her life to Christ. You never know what God is doing, even in the midst of the opposition. When you stand up for Jesus, and you stand and face the music, not running away, not hiding, when you have to choose in those moments, when you have to choose between Jesus and the culture, stand up for Jesus and trust the results to God. Those are the principles we find from the past that still guide us today. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for all of the examples that are in these two chapters of 
the book of the Acts of the Apostles that we've been mining out for the past several weeks. We live in a day when it seems like little by little, our culture continues to shift around us. Help us to be not among those who simply shake their fists at the culture and complain. Transform us to be ready to be able to minister within a changing culture, even as a minority when it comes to that. Of people who know you, who are listening to your voice, who are open to be f- being filled with your spirit, and who are guided by words and examples of truth, knowing that you are a God who works in strange ways. And there are all kinds of people that you love and value, even in the midst of some who complain to us or about us most loudly. We pray for all of our friends who do not know Jesus. We pray especially for those friends and acquaintances and co-workers who are hostile to Jesus. Lord, you you alone know why that hostility is so great and why it's felt so deeply. And I pray that you would use us and our stories and the grace in our lives and how you heal our brokenness to lead others to the joy and hope that comes from knowing Jesus today. Walk with us this week. It's in Jesus' name that we ask.